But I think there's been this fear that exercise is somehow going to be dangerous. Uh, and it's quite the contrary. After that first day, when you, they say you have cancer, there's a new person born. You know, there's this thing called new normal. I, th I think they don't really maybe understand how much it's going to help them. Each patient and each survivor is going to be experiencing different side effects, different experiences. The positive is that it's, it's never too late. Welcome to the REACH podcast, where you'll hear from researchers, doctors and patients themselves on how exercise, nutrition and lifestyle behaviors can reduce cancer risk and improve survivorship. I'm your host, Kieran Fairman. This week's episode of the REACH podcast is sponsored by the Lamstrom Foundation, which is a non-profit organization founded by Major League Soccer goalkeeper and Stage 4 Hodgkin's lymphoma survivor, Matt Lamson. The mission of the Lamstrom Foundation is to provide difference-making financial, emotional and motivational support to cancer patients and families in all stages of cancer treatment and recovery, as well as to fund proven cancer researchers. So for more information and regular updates on the Lamstrom Foundation and what they're doing, go ahead and follow the Lamstrom Foundation on Facebook or visit lamstrom.com today. Hey, welcome back to episode 19 of the Reach Podcast. We're doing part two of Dr. Nicole Kulos-Reed. Uh, if you remember in part one from episode 12, we talked a lot about head and neck cancer and Nicole had some really cool insight into uh, some of the intricacies and, and considerations for working with that population. It was fascinating for me. Um, it's some, so a population I haven't worked with before, so it was really just fascinating to hear a lot of what she had to say about how to work around some of the treatment side effects that they experience. Today is a little bit different, but it's it's a really important episode because we focus mostly on the translation of research, and we both kind of agree that one of the biggest areas that's missing in our field is the translation of research and how do we get what we do out to the masses and how do we actually implement it. Because if you talk, you know, you don't need to convince us that exercise works. And it's so frustrating to go into these communities and deliver talks to professionals or to survivorship groups. And they have no idea that the field of exercise oncology exists. And so myself and Nicole just have a, have a chat about how do, we, how do we improve that infrastructure? How do we improve the communication? How do we get more professionals with experience in this area and set them up for success by opening up communication with physicians and all that type of stuff. So again, it's just a cool chat about air take on the overview of the field and then some important areas that we have moving forward. And we also kind of touch on Nicole's business, uh, Thrive Health Services, which is again aimed at this of this idea of of disseminating this information of training professionals in the area of cancer research and just a really cool service that I think you'll see a lot more companies like this start to evolve over the years. And so Nicole just gives a really cool insight into what they do there. So that's pretty much it. So sit back and enjoy the show and we'll catch you at the end. Did you have any uh, common modifications to any of your exercises that kind of consistently came up that you would say maybe this is something that people working with head and neck cancers might want to consider? Yeah, so uh, I, I mean, I wasn't the exercise professional in the room with them, but I know from our study a um, lot of uh, balance work was important, which makes sense. If you think that they've lost lean muscle mass, um, the structural integrity right, of their system is, is diminished. And so engaging in some, um, some balance and activities and some core building, strength building activities before you would move out from the core. So a lot of our movements were kind of whole body functional movements. 
and really adapted things for individuals depending on where they were in terms of balance. You know, we'd have some people starting in chairs before they'd move to like a stability ball for some exercises or, you know, not going down onto the floor until they had the strength to get up off the floor. And a lot of that's building their self-efficacy as well with that, right? So we're not going to get them down onto the floor week one if they have then a super hard time getting up and that drains their energy for doing the rest of the class and they feel like they're not competent. So, you know, keeping them upright, modifying exercises based on their pose, their, their ability to go up and down was probably one of our big things. I really like the point that you kind of keep returning to self-efficacy and uh, the more I get my feet wet in the behavioral side of things and, and uh, working on the doctor folk here at Ohio State has taught me a great deal about this and it, it's critical for the long-term adherence to, to exercise, the idea of self-efficacy and improving motivation and all that type of stuff, particularly when you're going through treatment and even coming out of treatment into survivorship, the fluctuations in daily, weekly, monthly fatigue, um, throw in life on top of that and you'll have some days or weeks where you have more exercise and then you have some days or weeks where you have you won't get to the gym as much or you won't be able to exercise as much and being kind to yourselves on those lower weeks and having that self-efficacy as a baseline and knowing that you know I can do this instead of having a lower week or two and then cutting yourself off and saying it's not for me I think it, it speaks volumes to the idea of, of self-efficacy as a way of of keeping that kind of longer term goal there. Absolutely. The other thing that we do, and this has been part of our program model across our different tumor groups that we work with, and it's in all of our current work, um, is that we give people three programs and we call it our, our stoplight, our red light, yellow light, green light programs. And so when they have their baseline test with us, we give them their ideal program. That's their green light, right? So when they're feeling their best, Here's the ultimate pr prescription from an exercise physiologist perspective, what they should and could be doing. And then we give them two modified programs. So the yellow lights on their so-so day, they don't have a ton of energy, but they want to still do something. So it would be less reps, less exercises, dialing it back essentially. And then their red light program that they get is the easiest program. It's when they're having a tough day, but we want them to do something. And and the reason we've devised this strategy is to get rid of that all or none that can happen with exercise. So they're given a prescription, they have a crappy day, they can't do it, and they look at it and go, oh, well, I guess I do nothing. Because they're not exercise professionals. They don't necessarily know how to modify it. Even if it's a, something as simple as just cutting down the number of exercises, they may go, oh, well, do I just start with the first one? Do I do the last one? Like, what, what do I do here? So we've taken all the guesswork out of it, give them their three programs. And again, I'm going to come back to it, but it's about their self-efficacy. It's showing them that they can do something even on their most fatigued days. And as they become more competent exercisers, then they can start to look at it and go, okay, I know I can't do it all today. I'm going to pick my two favorite exercises and I'll do those for 10 minutes instead of my 30 minutes. And, you know, it, that has been a big piece of what we've developed across our, our tumor group populations that we work with. And it's, I think, one of the key factors in helping them to build their sense of confidence and their awareness of what their body is able to handle on any given day. I, I just, I love that perspective in providing people with options because you touched on it yourself. You know, maybe they're not educated in, in how to design their own programs, but inherently by providing them that options, you're giving them the ability to educate themselves. And too often you see as part of these trials, again, people will come in for 8, 16, 24 weeks, whatever it is, and we pick their weights and we pick their reps and we pick their sets. And at the end of the study, we say, good luck. And they're kind of standing there going, 
you know, you did everything for me. Now what? I don't know how to do it myself. And as as you provide those with those options, they do start to learn that pattern of it's not I have to do all of the workout or I don't do it at all. They learn how to listen to their body. They learn how to listen to internal and external cues and being able to find a stimulus or find a program that suits them for that day. So I really love that model. Um, we do too. I think it works. And it, <laughs> it comes down to then engaging them and teaching them how to be an exerciser, right? We're not teaching them how to do a squat. We're teaching them how to be an exerciser and how to build this into their daily routine. And so maybe their squat ends up being at their desk at work when they return to work. Or maybe it be, is they're retired and they do 10 squats in the morning at their kitchen counter. We're giving them the skills to integrate it into their lifestyle, whatever that may look like for them. I'm going to backtrack a little bit back to a point that we were talking when we were talking about the idea of translation and, and getting exercise professionals involved in this area. You were speaking about uh, oncologists and physicians kind of trusting us and coming to us uh, to talk about what the cancer looks like. And I think I'd piggyback, that, piggyback off of that and say there's also a responsibility on the professionals to display a level of humility and be able to open up communication with physicians and oncologists. For example, my training is in breast and prostate cancer. So if I, you know, in, clinically, if I had a head and neck cancer survivor come to me, you know, can I call you for advice? Can I go to the head and neck oncologist in Columbus or wherever I am and say, you know, this is my background teach me about what are the side effects that this population has how does the treatment look you know let's work together as opposed to having you know two separate entities working against each other if you open that communication and that dialogue i think it then becomes that team environment that you can work together to problem solve and you you put the best of both worlds together and you can come up with a problem or a solution i should say Oh, man, we could talk for hours. <laughs> um, <laughs> that, that communication piece, right, between the exercise professionals and the healthcare professionals is one of the biggest gaps. And actually, on Saturday this weekend, we did a, a talk here for CSEP, which is our Canadian Society of Exercise Physiology. Um, and um, Loren Capozzi, who's the co-founder with me of Thrive Health Services, and she was my PhD student and is completing her MD and David Langelier, who's a MD resident in physiatry, who's doing his master's with me, they I did a talk first, and then they did a talk right after on how do we improve communication between fitness professionals in the community and healthcare providers. And because one of the big gaps, and we know this from some of the literature, is that healthcare professionals or providers, they're um, one of their barriers is they don't know who to refer to out in the community. They don't know a difference between a registered kinesiologist or a certified personal trainer or a certified exercise physiologist or, you know, whatever the designation is within ACSM versus what we have here in Canada, right? So there's a real barrier there in terms of they don't even know. And so because they don't know those those populations, they're not willing or able to refer ethically to these groups. They're not going to just send somebody to Joe at, you know, whatever gym because they might know that Joe's a good trainer, but they don't know if Joe can work with cancer survivors, right? So there's a real need to start building that communication between who we have in the community, never mind people like us so that are researchers that have a bit more of an easy end to go and talk to people in, in the clinical setting. But how do we start building that communication between what's in the community and where these patients are in the clinical setting? You know, we're trying to do that within what we call our clinic to community model of educating and or having professionals in the clinic setting, exercise professionals in the clinic setting to help then triage people out into 
community settings where we've provided training. So we do know that the trainers at whatever gym we've worked with can safely and effectively work with our target population. But there's a there's a huge gap. And I think we need the fitness industry to take some of this on and be innovators and disruptors and say, we've got to change the way this healthcare system is working. And, and here's what we can offer. Here's where we can build wellness into this. And, and we're willing to take on the role of, of becoming better educated ourselves so we can ask, but then we need to have communication back with you. So, you know, I mean, the ideal world is electronic medical records become accessible for wellness providers in the community, for fitness professionals recognized as an important part of this healthcare team so that they can communicate very effectively back to the healthcare professionals. Kind of on your on what you were speaking about there, uh, you're speaking to someone like Sarah Weller, for example, who's going to do her master's under Kristen Campbell. Uh, she spent 10 years trying to develop and maintain these relationships with physicians and oncologists. And I've even experienced it firsthand myself as when I started out in this field as an undergrad and I got my ACSM cancer exercise trainer certification, you just don't have that credibility as you're approaching these physicians and oncologists. And with each kind of degree and more experience I've got and then, you know, coming towards the end of my PhD, um, you know, I have enough experience to where I can effectively communicate. I have more confidence in myself in my ability to work with cancer patients, survivors. But even just having those letters behind your name, as you said, automatically gives you a little bit more credibility and buy-in from them. So I think it, it it's difficult then when we look to trainers in the community, how do you get Joe Bloggs, who's at the local Anytime Fitness, who has a passion for this, how can we open those doors of communication? And, and you know, it, it's, it's I don't know the answer to it. You know, it, it's just an interesting phenomenon in, in people who are interested in this area. They do need to be trained in it, but there is people that really want to work with this population. And we can't we can't shut that door in their face just because they don't have as much experience as we would. And that's where the team collaboration comes in, I think, as well. Absolutely. And and the real world is that's who's out there, right? We don't have in every gym a CEP, a certified exercise physiologist. That's just not real world. And so how do we work with what is in the fitness industry? Because guess what? You know, if a cancer survivor is thinking about this and they don't know where to go, they're walking into these places already. And so we need to do a better job of making sure that these places, the gyms, the fitness facilities have training, that they've got the education to be able to work safely and effectively with these groups. And and as we start to build that capacity, then we're going to see that there's um, an easier way to build that referral mechanism from the clinic to the community, because the clinics will start recognizing that, okay, this isn't just somebody who's done a weekend training course. There's somebody who's, you know, at a certified exercise physiologist level or a registered kinesiologist, they've got a lot of training and their scope of practice is to work with clinical populations with potentially unstable medical conditions. And so as that recognition grows of them as a healthcare professional, as a wellness professional, then we'll start to, I think, build some of those bridges. But there's got to be way better communication done on both ends, for sure. Exactly. And almost as a as a PSA, you know, you and I both know from a research perspective, the difficulty in, in communication, in recruitment, in finding oncologists and physicians who are willing to work with you regularly and donate part of their time to help you with all those issues um and that's in a research world where we're trained to do this so it can be even more difficult to do that when you are sending a cold email to an oncologist desk and so 
the point I'm trying to make is that there, there's a, there's a certain degree of resilience you need to work in in any clinical population, but this field in particular, and what I've seen is even if there are good communication, you know, strategies there, it still can be a frustrating and long and tedious process. And so people who are interested in working in this area, it, it's a case of you just you can't give up if you want to work with this population. You you will be sending cold emails. You will be getting a lot of no's. But you know, ultimately, it it will happen if you want it to happen. It's just a case of when and and staying true to to what you want to do and staying you know passionate and and resilient with it. Absolutely, you have to be tenacious. I mean, I've been doing this here in Calgary since um, 2001 when I moved here, and I used to say I'd have to sell my soul to the devil to get them to recognize that you know what I was offering was something that was going to be good for the patients, right? So. It took a long time to to build um, in that sense of expertise that we could deliver for them. Uh, it wasn't overnight. Um, at one point, I was like, you know, I'd get so frustrated hearing from cancer survivors who'd go, why didn't I know about your program? And I'm like, you know, I don't know. I don't know how much more I need to do. Do I have to stand like naked in front of the cancer center? Which <laughs> is not a pretty idea, <laughs> you know, but it was that whole thing. Like, how is this not becoming more ingrained in? in what the cancer center can offer, right? So it's still a lot of work for us, and we've been at it for a long time. And as we try to build better links to the community, yeah, it's going to take passion and tenacity and continued drive, um, but it's going to be worth it because eventually exercise is going to be standard care for cancer. Yeah, I love that. And it, it really is a case of when and not if. And it, it's oh, absolutely. it's so exciting to be, to be at the part where we're really starting to see it steamroll, at least for me pushing eight years in the field now you know eight years ago there was a lot being done particularly by you know Kerry Cornier's group and there was probably five or six main hubs of research but as all those PhD students started to graduate and these independent researchers started to pop up I mean you know you saw from the the special interest group at ACSM were just exploding in terms of how many people are then looking to be independent researchers and it's just it's a really exciting time to be a part of it and to see how many different people are look coming out with different perspectives and looking at different cancers it's it's really fascinating to me absolutely and i think with um you know Katie Schmidt's taking the lead role with ACSM as president you know that we're going to see so much more hopefully of this um traction and building forward and and building on really good strong evidence right i'm you know i'm um I'm a big proponent of that translational work, but you know, there's a ton of questions from the evidence side that research still needs to address and answer. But I think at the same time, we have to be, uh, for me, it's ethical and moral. We know it's good for people. So we've got to start implementing. We've got to start doing that translational piece and, and yeah, still answer questions. But at the same time, there's no reason why we have to answer all the questions because that'll never be <laughs> yeah. And then translate, do it at the same time. And as we build better evidence, we'll tweak what we're translating. And that's what I love about the the head and neck study design, the enhanced study design in particular, is you and I seem to have similar values in in this idea of of it. It's almost immoral to withhold exercise as much as we know about its benefits. So having studies where we compare an immediate intervention to a delayed intervention or two forms of exercise, where no matter what, people are getting some sort of of exercise because it, it's so hard to to do an exercise versus a control study and these people come in and you're after selling them on the power of exercise and they come in and they're excited to get going and you say you know sorry buddy 
your control so don't exercise for six months it's it's a it's part it's a large frustration for me and i think that's where we share share the same kind of perspective on the translation uh, side of things and for me that's where the podcast comes in and trying to just get the word out out there about our field get experts on to talk about the power of of physical activity and nutrition and i think that's where you're coming in as well with the thrive health services that you're working on with lorraine um so let's talk a little bit about that because i think it's a really uh, unique and and it's an area that's that's of much need for professionals. So, what is the Thrive Health Services and what are you doing with it? So, Thrive Health Services is a company that Loren and I co-founded, and it is a wellness consulting company. The big piece that we've developed so far within that is our cancer and exercise training for health and wellness professionals. So, um, we've taken the training that you know I had delivered. Um, for a number of years in person. And then when Loren joined me as a PhD student, we absolutely refined and revamped it and built in, you know, kind of the best evidence and latest evidence um, to develop a very comprehensive um, training that was, until we went with Thrive Health Services, it was um, completely delivered in person. So, you know, fairly limited scope because we're doing this kind of on the side. Um, and so we could deliver a couple trainings a year to people that would be willing to come to Calgary and, and get it in, in person. So with Thrive Health Services, we took that training and we put it online, um, which I think is a very effective way to get it out to more people. And it's a comprehensive um, 12 module training that covers everything from the basics of cancer treatments and side effects all the way through to um, understanding behavior change and implementation of self-regulatory techniques. Because I think for sure with the fitness industry professionals, um, that's one of the biggest gaps. They know how to do an exercise prescription and, and testing and, you know, depending on their scope of practice and what level of training they have. But so often they're not learning about behavior change and what does it actually take to build adherence and build somebody to become an exerciser. So we cover that, that full realm, um, all evidence-based. So we're taking what is the actual latest evidence? What do we know works in the real world and have built that into these modules. Um, along with that, we have a very comprehensive cancer and exercise manual, which, you know, I think it's probably one of the better resources out there in the market in terms of um, having this book that goes through, you know, your common cancers and what's the evidence for exercise with each of these populations. And based on that, how should you be tailoring it? You know, to go back to your head and neck question, you know, it, it has in there, you know, what we know from an evidence is important in terms of adding in that resistance training first. So their prescription looks different than if we're tailoring or giving something to men with prostate cancer. So that's really what Thrive Health Services to date has been about. Um, we have a lot of plans and hopefully ambitions over the next year to build in modules, have experts develop various modules within their um, area of expertise so we can continue to enhance the training and and build out the ability to deliver information effectively to the wellness population of fitness professionals in particular so that they can work more effectively with cancer survivors. I love that and I'll, I'll piggyback off that again because when I first had an interest in working with uh, cancer patient survivors it was actually just around the time where acsm released their uh, certification and there's <laughs> when you get into it and you see the the complexity of cancer biology of the different treatments and even the treatments themselves are ever evolving so there's a continuous need to keep up with these these treatments and and the side effects that arise as a result but um while it almost takes you 
you almost need to go to that depth to understand the biology, understand the treatments, to then be able to step back from it and say, okay, I understand all this. The physical activity program may not look a lot different, but you still need that nuanced uh, approach and you still need that knowledge foundation to be able to decide that, if that makes sense. So I'll, I'll kind of you know piggyback off you and just say that it, it, it's critical if you're interested in this area, there are enough resources and, and the Thrive Health Services module is is one of those that, you know, my biggest uh, emphasis in people interested in this area is look for a certification like that because beyond all else, I can send you, you know, a round table or I can send you a, a resource or a paper to read, but without a course like that, you still don't have that kind of, uh, the, the depth of knowledge required to, to work with this population. Absolutely. And, you know, one of our goals with this training is to start to develop um, the network of people that are interested in this. And then as we develop that network, as latest evidence comes out that they may not be, you know, searching, you know, the latest PubMed release of, oh, guess what? We know new information for colorectal cancer that you should start applying an exercise. When people have this training, they can become part of this network and will do the work so that they become aware of the latest evidence so that they can continually update their practice. Um, and, and, you know, hopefully, you know, we see this training as it's a tool in their toolkit. So just like, you know, fitness professionals take trainings, all sorts of um, different ones for, you know, leading different types of classes or working with specific population. That's what this training is about. It is comprehensive. It is very in-depth. Um, for some professionals, depending on their background, it can feel like a ton of information. And we've had that feedback. But as they start to work clinically, they continually can refer back to the information and the, um, you know, they get everything when they when they take the course, they get all the downloads, all of the information becomes there. So they can use that as a resource to ensure that, you know, that they're they're working within a their scope of practice, but that they can implement what they learn in these modules into their real practice. Yeah, I like that. And it's it's almost it's not a case of you finish this course, and you know, everything there is to know off the top of your head. It's giving yeah. you resources to be able to refer back to that you can exactly. kind of keep checking and that long-term kind of going back and forth then is what reinforces that that knowledge base absolutely it's so key and i think you know i think as as researchers and the way our careers are set up they're set up for us to kind of keep things to ourselves and build your career so you can get tenure and and then you know you publish your pieces in the journals that only other academics are reading that kind of thing and so i think Oftentimes, academics tend to get quite territorial about what they're doing. Thrive Health Services is our attempt to put it out there for people to share what we're doing, to say, here's our protocols that we develop for these different populations. Here's why you should, you know, tailor and do things a certain way. So, yeah, it's not the it's not the um, traditional, let's put it in a journal and everybody has to cite us kind of way of doing things. But it's a whole lot faster than going that route, and it's going to hopefully have a much wider audience and people that will never be reading those academic journals, right? Exactly, and and you make a good point. In in we are trained to to be able to quickly read a study, dissect the methods, and take the one or two key takeaway points. Yeah. Whereas someone without that research background, it could take them you know hours and and beyond. So yeah. by having that resource, where you know. Yeah, it's important to understand research, but let us do the nitty gritty stuff and we'll give you the couple of gems, the takeaway pieces in that, you know, we can dive into the methods. We know if it was, you know, a high quality study or not. We know, you know, the nuances of and, and what to take away. So again, it, it you kind of highlight the need 
or the, the benefit of having that as a resource and, and you, yeah it's important to understand research but we will also give that to you too and I, I just I love your perspective on on academics in the industry and I think social media by nature is kind of facilitating this uh, in terms of us getting out there for me personally I mean I'm almost yeah eight years into this field and I still have people come up to you and say I had no idea you did this type of work I had no idea that this field existed and we too easy for easily forget when we're talking to each other and we understand the depth of the research and we understand the scope and how you know how old the field is and just how much evidence there is and we forget that people have no clue that this exists so it's not even it's it's a uh, you know as you said it's one having that you know kind of dropping the ego and dropping the territory and being comfortable with going out and sharing our research and getting the word out there because one of my biggest perspectives is we can do this all the time on the back end and do our research and you know come up with evidence-based practices but ultimately if we can get the word out there to the to the masses and get them to fight on the front end in terms of every patient survivor listening to this go into your oncologist the next time you see them and and ask where your where your practices for exercise what can i do and the more people that understand that and the more people are asking that on the front end it's kind of this collective effort to come together and and really i think that's what's going to drive our push to establish this as a standard of care absolutely and that's why you know like this podcast that you're doing all of this is is what's going to increase awareness and increase awareness outside of academics. I mean, I think we, yeah, we tend to get insular and it circulates in the same group of people. And then it's even harder for people coming new into this industry or into academia to understand and find all the resources and people who are doing what. But I, I think you're absolutely right. If we can put more of the power in the hands of the patients as an advocacy group, to say, not ask even for it, but demand like, okay, so where's my wellness prescription and where does exercise fit in that for me? What can you recommend? You know, as if we have more and more patients doing that, the system will change because the system changes when the demand is there. And it's not going to come from you and I as academic researchers going, hey, here's some more evidence. Everybody knows exercise is good for cancer survivors, right? It's, it's not a question anymore. Exactly. But we haven't translated that great evidence into, and here's now the resources for your cancer survivors. So if the cancer survivors as patients start demanding it, then we'll see the system, the healthcare systems go, okay, well, we've got to start figuring out how we budget to put something into this because in, in Canada, the patients are the taxpayers who are building, the, who pay for the system, right? So that's how in, in Canada, at least, the system will start to change is with a lot of that patient demand and advocacy work. Yeah, and that's probably one of the most frustrating pieces is it, it ultimately does come down to policy. It does come down to money. And uh, we have a prostate oncologist here and he cracks me up all the time because he's the head of the prostate division, MD, PhD from Harvard, and you know really is a strong advocate for exercise uh, as a tool. And the rants he goes on in terms of how much people are willing to pay and fund for say six months of chemotherapy that may cost the hospital or may cost insurance three hundred thousand dollars and that same three hundred thousand dollars it it might improve quality of life for that person for a little bit it may extend their life for a little bit but that three hundred thousand dollars could set up run an exercise physiology clinic for a couple of years and serve an insurmountable amount of people 
you know and it's it's just it's it's an interesting piece of the puzzle that I get caught with in terms of the direction of my career and my biggest goal is impact and where's the impact going to come from is it going to come from these studies where we do a pilot trial with 40 patients or is it going to come from someone really driving that policy change and getting people to understand that it's a long-term investment it's your three hundred thousand dollars now for an exercise clinic is going to pay off five years down the road when we have an improvement in survival rate we have a reduction in people coming back for appointments and and cancer-related morbidities um, so it's, it's just a really, it's a big source of frustration for me as I kind of step back and evaluate the, the field and where we're going. Yeah, I mean, I, I'm a firm believer in that advocacy work has got to start happening at a bigger level. Um, you know, there, I think there's there's so many things here, right? Um, I think, um, you know, we haven't in the exercise and cancer area done a really strong job of collecting the healthcare costs, the healthcare utilization measures. So I think there's some work that has to be done in that. Um, I know for us here in Alberta, um, Margie McNeely and I have a, a project that we're leading called the Alberta Cancer Exercise Project, which is about building in the certified exercise physiologist into the clinic setting and and starting that triage for all cancer survivors into exercise programs that are in the community. And a big piece of data that we're collecting are healthcare costs and the, the costs to actually run these community-based programs. Like, what does it actually cost to run a 12-week program plus 12 weeks of maintenance in a community setting, in a YMCA or a, for a City of Calgary recreation facility, right? So I think as we collect that data over the next few years, hopefully some of that can go back to the healthcare system to say, you know, here's how much we need out of your budget to support wellness across the board for cancer survivors, and we know, you and I know, it's a fraction of what they pay for medical-related expenses. Um, but we also know that pharma is a big industry. And, I mean, I know it's it's much different even in the States, right? But, you know, going up against big pharma who can do everything that they can do to make sure that the money spent on the medications and the drugs, right, is, you know, that's a bit of a battle. So it's it's going to, again, take the patients demanding it, I think, for the systems to go against. And I'm not saying that, you know, all of those drugs aren't a necessary part of the treatment, right? That's why we're much more effective at having people survive cancers because the drug treatments and the, the, pers- uh, the, um, um, tailored medicine pers- approach is really, you know, going to be, I think the game changer for cancer, but then you're left with that individual who needs to have some wellness focus as they move through their survivorship. And that's where exercise comes in. So it's not replacing treatment. It's, it's part of the the pathway as they move along. I mean, the states in particular, for the most part, they're, uh, the, the most hospitals are profit-driven. And we're just coming from the perspective and saying, hey, take some of that billion dollars of profit, funnel right. it back into to these patients, survivors, that lives we can affect so profoundly with just, you know, a little bit of investment. Yeah, I know. And I think... I don't know, maybe you and I need to write an opinion piece on all this so that, you know, RCTs need to compare active exercise pieces, no more control groups. And then we need to start translating this into uh, the call for systems to start implementing this. Like the evidence is there. And yes, we can still ask research questions and we can still do it. RCTs are the bane of my existence, but we can still do RCTs without control groups, do, you know, 
dose one versus dose two and see if we can get differences or look at some of the behavioral factors, you know, as differences. But, but, you know, I think we need to start putting it out there. And part of our job as academics is targeting, you know, the healthcare professionals and the systems with some sort of article speaking again in their language. It, it For me, it's really interesting to speak to, you know, you lot up in Canada compared to some of the people here in the States, even, you know, uh, Bobby Chima and Rob Newton and all those folks over in Oz compared yeah. to Ireland, for example. The, the infrastructure, the medical systems are all completely different. And, for example, Bobby was telling me that uh, cancer patient survivors are allowed to have up to five sessions a year uh, comp- or complemented um, that are comped by medical companies or insurance companies um looking from the outside in in terms of what you lot do up in canada you know really are leading the forefront in a lot of the research but again the frustration is the translation into clinical practice um ireland is the same there's a lot of uh community-based initiatives but they're out of academic centers and they're funded by external grants and the frustration seems to be all around is we're going out and getting this these individual grants to fund these individual studies when really that just could be a sustainable piece of infrastructure in within the medical system you know when you look at cardiac rehab it's already a staple why is that not the same case and i you know one of my frustrations is speaking to a lot of the cardiac rehab people you know i ask them what their mistakes were and and how the history of the field evolved and that almost all of them are kind of saying the point at which cardiac rehab was established as a standard of care there wasn't as much research or evidence-based information as there is now in the cancer field. So we're at a point now where we're almost ahead of where ca- cardiac rehab was, where they started to to get themselves funded. W- when's it going to click for us to kind of go, this is it, this needs to happen? Right, that's, my, that's like my number one frustration because I've been using that line in, in my different presentations for years now. Like we've had more evidence for years. I mean, granted... Cancer is hundreds of diseases, right? It's not, you know, in cardiac rehab, a heart is a heart is a heart. But that being said, we still have enough evidence that we need to be translating it into practice. And it's just, it's just not happening. And it's super frustrating because we know ultimately at the end of the day, if we've got patient-centered healthcare systems, it is what is right for patients. Like end of the story. I'll, uh, I'll pause us there before we just go on a, a never-ending rant. Um, so let's finish up with a couple of things. Uh, one of the questions I always ask researchers and professionals, if you have a piece of advice to give to, number one, a professional interest in getting into this area, and two, a cancer patient or survivor looking to start an exercise program, what would that advice look like? So advice for fitness professionals wanting to work in um, in oncology and cancer, um, I would say educate yourself and then with that education, be passionate about making change. So you, you have to be a disruptor because the system right now is not ultimately set up to just bring you into the fold. So you have to make sure you're coming in knowing how to speak the language of that medical community, right? So educate yourself whatever that might be, um, ACSM, Thrive Health Services, do your own reading, but know how to speak the language of that system so that they see you as credible. And then, like you, we said, talked about earlier, be tenacious and, and use your passion to, to um, 
to continue to drive you forward because it's not going to be easy, but it will be worth it. You have to be willing to disrupt the system and, and advocate for yourself. Um, for the cancer survivor who is interested in and wants to know more about the role of exercise, I would say two things. Um, one is ask your healthcare team. Ask them what they know. Ask them who they can refer you to. And the more survivors do that and the more the healthcare team goes, ooh, this is becoming something that we need to start to address, then we'll start to see some change. And then I would say second um, is, this is a message we give all our cancer survivors, is just move more. Where can you take your usual activities and start to energize them, start to add some movement into your regular routine? right? It's great if they're going to the gym already or if that's what they have access to and they're, they've got the confidence to go out and do that. That's awesome. But it doesn't have to be that. It just has to be about moving more and decreasing sedentary time, increasing active time and building up, right? And slow and steady will win the race kind of idea. It's not jumping from zero to 150 the first week. It's about it's about building up and, and find something that's enjoyable. I know for us, all of our programs that we deliver are group-based programs for that social support. And if you look at um, the literature, one of the best predictors of long-term adherence, not like 12-week adherence or 24-week adherence, but one year, two years out is social support. So you want to build that support around being somebody who is active. I love that piece of advice. And uh, the move more is, is so important because, again, when it comes back to translation, people, some people look at our, our guidelines and say, well, it has to be this structured activity. I have to go to the gym and slug it out on the elliptical. Or I have to go and count my reps and count my sets. And some people just don't like that. And where we're coming from is is all activity counts you know if you're walking around your neighborhood on a saturday morning with your friend gossiping about the neighbor's fence and how they put it up and it just looks like a crap fence and it ruins the neighborhood that counts you know whatever it is to 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 get you moving and it doesn't have to be you know anyone knows standing on an elliptical for 40 minutes can be mind-numbing so finding those things that you enjoy is it skiing is it you know mountain biking it doesn't have to be you know some of the you look at some of the scandinavian guys who are looking at um fc prostate is a is a soccer team with prostate cancer survivors awesome, so right? so it's those really kind of unique things that when uh it, it, that's one of the biggest pieces for me that gets lost in translation in that um when we say do cardio they're like well i have to go in and i have to go on a spin bike i have to go on a treadmill and that's not it's it's whatever's going to get your heart rate up and you know, we we may advocate for resistance training, but maybe enjoy yoga, you know, do yoga. So um, I really like that point where it just, in terms of translation, it's, it's we have this idea of what we think is optimal, but ultimately it comes down to what, what are you going to enjoy? Can you get a support group that's going to facilitate your adherence and keep each other accountable and, and just increase the overall enjoyment to, to where you are still doing it a year down the line and it's not this 12-week bump of motivation and you kind of fall off again. Exactly. Yeah. And, and think about, you know, for you and I, the things that you enjoy doing, it's often with other people, whether it's a sporting type of environment with a team or you go to your favorite class, a spin class or a yoga class. You know, one of the things I often tell our cancer survivors in our education that we do is, you know, if you try nothing else, if this is brand new to you, try some yoga and it can be in your own home. There's lots of online apps that you can use, but really gentle, therapeutic kind of based yoga. So it's not, you know, no hot yoga. You're not going into a hot yoga studio. Um, you know, it, it's about doing something that you're going to find pleasurable. And we know that affect, the emotions around 
engaging in activity are so important for adherence. And so it has to be fun. It has to be enjoyable. And I know from my years of doing yoga research in particular that most often we see really positive affect associated with that activity. It's something that allows people to slow down and breathe, something we often forget about doing. Yeah. Um, deep, meaningful breathing, and it allows people to be focused on how they're feeling right then and there, not worried about what happened a week ago, not worried about what's coming up, but truly being present. And and oftentimes with exercise, right, we're trying to distract ourselves, like that getting on the treadmill in 40 minutes, you're right, it's mind-numbing, and you're just counting down the minutes to get off it, right? And that really shouldn't be what exercise is about for us. It should be something that we're engaged in, whether it's golfing with your foursome on Saturday mornings or running around with your kids, taking your dog for a walk. You know, you should enjoy it. And that's what's going to keep you coming back for more. So, you know, where can people find, and one of the most important things I want to get across is when people are looking at this, most often it's going to be academic institutions that are doing this research so um cancer patient survivors who are in your area uh where can they find you and then in general how can people find uh, the services you offer and even you on social media to to interact with you so if um they want to find out about like our programs here in alberta what we're doing um thrive for cancer survivors.com is my lab website here so that would be probably the best place to start um and that's an easy one, hopefully, to remember. So thriveforcancersurvivors.com. Um, our Twitter associated with that is Wellness Lab U of C for the University of Calgary. So they can find us there. Um, exercise professionals, thrivehealthservices.com for the cancer and exercise training piece. Um, and I'm always happy to connect with people individually. So you can email me at wellnesslab at ucalgary.ca. Or my email specifically is n Qloss, that's C-U-L-O-S-R-E at ucalgary.ca. So any of those ways, um, our website has all of our contact information as well. So it's pretty easy if you can find us online to reach out to us. And, and part of what my lab does, because our focus is on this knowledge translation and moving the research into practice, is that if you contact us, we will get back to you. <laughs> We're <laughs> about sharing our resources. And, you know, if you want to see protocols, you want to know what we've done for our yoga, you want to know about trainings, you, you want to know about how to work with a head and neck cancer survivor, we'll get back to you and we'll share our information. I love that. And I'll, I'll throw all of those links in the show notes as well. And listen, Nicole, I, I, I can't thank you enough. It was, uh, you know, such a phenomenal chat for me. And I just love connecting with people who share um, but with knowledge and passion for the field. So uh, I think <laughs> we both just got each other fired up, fired up on a Monday afternoon for, for no reason. Now we just got to go back to our, our regular office desk and get back to work. <laughs> well, you've made me uh, excited about doing a few things, though. I've got lots of notes actually written down here. So it's been awesome chatting with you. I appreciate it. So there you have it for another episode of the Reach Podcast. Again, a huge thanks to Nicole for sharing a lot of our time and our knowledge and experience in in all sorts of areas of cancer research. I think it was a really cool conversation. I certainly got a lot out of it. Um, I have all of Nicole's information about Triumph Health Services and where you can find her on social media in the show notes. And if you're looking for me, again, you go to reachbeyondcancer.com or you can go to Twitter and follow me at Kieran Fairman. That's where I post most of my the kind of cancer-specific information. So thanks again for tuning in, folks, and we'll see you next time.